Welcome to the Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Cass. And I'm Em. And in this episode, we're going to focus on some violent texts from the Christian New Testament. So just a heads up, at the start of the episode, we'll be covering issues of sexual violence and intimate partner violence. So do take care if you find these topics particularly distressing. But as usual, we will add some links to support services and resources in our show notes for anyone who wants to check them out. Now, in previous episodes, we've tended to look mostly at various violent events taking place in stories from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But that's not to say that there isn't a fair amount of violence going on in the New Testament too. Oh, you're dead right there. But it's interesting, isn't it, that New Testament violence is often overlooked. I mean, how many times have you heard people say something like, oh, the Old Testament has so much violence in it. God's always angry and he's always smiting people. But the New Testament is all about peace and love. And God loves everyone. Uh, Yes, I've heard that so often. Even from people who should really know better. It makes me really mad. But the New Testament texts portray a number of violent acts, violent language, and also violent ideologies, which readers often overlook or ignore. But that's hugely problematic, because to ignore this violence is to hold up the New Testament as the nicer or better half of the Christian Bible, and it implies that it's somehow more morally worthy than the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, or it suggests that the Old Testament, which comprises Jewish sacred scriptures, needs to be redeemed in some way by these Christian New Testament texts. And that is just a really troubling viewpoint to hold because it fosters the really toxic belief that Christianity somehow completes Judaism or supersedes it. Yeah, exactly. And that belief has been used and abused for centuries to justify all manner of anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic ideologies. So we definitely want to bust that myth. Yeah, we definitely do. Now, what I thought we'd do today is to look at some examples of explicit and implicit violence in the New Testament, including violent behaviour, violent language, and violent ideologies. And I want to draw some connections between the violence in these texts and the ideologies that underpin certain forms of contemporary violence. Sounds good. Okay, so Kaz, what do you first think of when you hear the words New Testament violence? To be honest, my mind goes first to the crucifixion of Jesus, because that's such a central event of the New Testament. We touched on the violence of the crucifixion in our episode titled Hashtag He Too, didn't we? Yeah, we did. So if listeners want to hear more on that discussion, you can check out that episode. But I always found it fascinating that the brutality of the crucifixion lies at the heart of Christian understandings of salvation and redemption. Hmm. But I'm not a theologian and that entire topic deserves a podcast series all of its own, preferably one that's hosted by a theologian who'll have way more knowledge than me about the topic. (laughs) And me. Yes, (laughs) that's definitely a subject for another day and another podcast. But other than the crucifixion, what types of violence do you associate with the New Testament? Well, there's quite a bit of symbolic violence and by that I mean the violence of language. So to give you some examples... Jesus is very scathing about some of the religious authorities of the day. He calls them a brood of vipers, snakes, hypocrites and blind fools. He refers to different communities of unbelievers as children of the devil and dogs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not just Jesus, though, who uses strong language to call out the people he disapproves of. 
the author of the Epistle to Titus, is incredibly mean about people from the Greek island of Crete. In chapter 1, he says that he's been told on good authority that, and I'm quoting here, the Cretans, the people from Crete, are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. But, you know, come on, poor Cretans. (laughs) (laughs) That seems a bit harsh. Yeah, it seems brutal and unnecessary. Yes. <laughs> now, as well as the name-calling, there's also plenty of threats issued in the New Testament, right? Yeah. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he warns the Christian church in Corinth that he's planning to visit them and to make sure that they're behaving themselves, and if they're not, there's going to be consequences. Ooh. He says, What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? Ooh, I suspect the Corinthians would not want Paul to visit them with a rod. They would not. No. No. (laughs) But Paul also warns people about the eternal anguish and destruction that awaits the wicked, which actually echoes what Jesus himself said about unrepentant sinners being destined for an eternal punishment in the fires of hell, which is pretty intense. Mm, It is. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus famously says to his disciples, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's similar to the Gospel of Luke, because Jesus says there, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Mm. So Jesus is pretty uncompromising in his use of language, isn't he? Yeah. And he also sometimes uses violent imagery to get his point across. Quite a few of his parables contain stories of murder and beatings and all manner of abuse. Mm. Other parables address the brutality of enslavement. Jesus tells stories about the enslaved being beaten or killed by their enslavers, or they're thrown out of the house into the darkness, where we're told there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because although Jesus speaks about the institution of enslavement and uses it as, a, as imagery in his parables, he never really challenges enslavement or its inherent violence. Yeah, you're right. Enslavement's never problematized in any New Testament text. It's just part of life in first century Palestine. And I mean, even Jesus, whose ministry is all about reaching out to the marginalized and to the oppressed and drawing them into this new kingdom of God, he doesn't call for an end to enslavement either. Instead, his teachings and parables seem to accept it as an institution. It's such an integral and taken-for-granted part of his cultural milieu, and it has been for centuries. Yeah, like all New Testament writings, Jesus' teachings really do capture the first century context they were written in, don't they? They do, yeah. I read a good article by biblical scholar Shelley Matthews, and she puts it really well, and I'm quoting her here. She says, New Testament texts often reflect, rather than challenge, the violent household and political structures of the ancient world. Yeah, that's so true. And it's also a brilliant article. Mm. And we'll come back to the violent household structures a little bit later in the podcast. But first, I want to cover another point Shelley Matthews makes about violence being particularly common in those New Testament texts that speak about the final day of judgment and the eschatological age. In other words, the end of time. So can you explain what was expected to happen at this final judgment? It's a concept that's first mentioned in some of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament texts. Some of the prophets like Amos and Isaiah refer to the final judgment as the day of the Lord. And this is a day where God will judge the earth, when God will punish sinners and deliver the righteous. Now, this idea of the day of the Lord is developed in some New Testament apocalyptic texts 
particularly the book of Revelation, which describes the day of the Lord as the time when God pours out his wrath on the wicked and inaugurates this new and glorious age for the Christian community. Okay, so I'm sure most of our listeners will have heard of the book of Revelation, but can you define what apocalyptic literature actually is? It's a genre of Jewish writing that was adopted by early Christian writers. Now, authors of apocalyptic texts describe their visions of the end times, which have been revealed to them by a divine hand, often by an angel or other heavenly messenger. Okay. So the word apocalypse comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which literally means the revelation or unveiling of things that are unknown. So examples of apocalyptic literature in the Hebrew Bible are found in the book of Daniel, as well as in some of the prophetic texts like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. And then in the New Testament, apocalyptic texts appear in some parts of the Gospels and in some of the epistles. But of course, the most well-known biblical apocalypse is the book of Revelation. It really is a fascinating genre of literature, isn't it? Yeah. Because the way it's written is incredibly vivid and dramatic. It's full of really fantastic and otherworldly imagery. There's, There's lots of symbolism used and heaps of outlandish events that make even the most dramatic science fiction or fantasy novel seem pretty boring in comparison. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, in the book of Revelation, we meet monstrous beasts. We meet dragons and demons. There are cosmic battles between heavenly hosts of angels and the demonic armies of hell. The author, who's identified as the Christian prophet John of Patmos, has visions of God's dazzling throne in the heavens. He witnesses terrifying scenes of monsters with many heads and horns. He sees earthquakes um, and solar eclipses. He sees lakes of burning sulfur. Oh my goodness. Yeah, there are rivers of blood. There's fire falling from the skies. The stars are swept from the heavens. There are giant locusts with teeth like a lion who torture their victims with a poisonous sting. Oh Lord. (laughs) There's a lot of human flesh being devoured and blood being spilt. It's very, very intense and it's very, very disturbing. Yeah, it, it really is. It's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Yeah. So all these events are supposed to herald the final judgment, the final battle between good and evil. But they're written in a kind of code, aren't they? Mm. The author wasn't saying that these monsters and rivers of blood and all the other extraordinary events would literally happen. But they symbolise very earthly events that would soon take place as part of God's plan. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's certainly how a lot of people understand the book of Revelation, that it presents readers with a symbolic depiction of events that are to unfold in the future. Mm. Now, some readers believe that these events would occur far into the future, and some argue that all the events described in Revelation are still yet to happen. Okay. And this idea became really popular during the 1970s after Hal Lindsey published his best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and he explained each symbol in Revelation and then connected it to a contemporary crisis like nuclear war, communism, and the satanic panic. Oh, interesting. The book actually inspired a whole series of books and films with apocalyptic themes, including the Left Behind series, which has been adapted into films and even computer games. It's a massive industry. Yeah, yeah. But there have also been a number of religious movements fixated on the end times, like the Branch Davidians. And their leader, David Koresh, claimed to have decoded the book of Revelation to forecast the imminent end of times. 
But the Branch Davidian movement ended in tragedy and violence after they clashed with authorities. Yeah, I remember that happening. It was a real tragedy. Mm. I remember even more recently, um, during the Capitol coup on January the 6th, 2021, when Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building in Washington. Yeah. I was following the story on social media and I was really surprised to see just how many people were interpreting this event as some sort of sign of the end times. Hmm. There were various tweets about God raining down fire and brimstone on all the sinners in Washington you know, in other words, the Democrats, <laughs> before he ushered in the dawn of the new age. And I know that some QAnon conspiracy theorists continue to draw on apocalyptic language to symbolise what they see as their divinely mandated battle against corrupt government and cultural immorality, mm. which is so fascinating. <laughs> it really is, hey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We should do a whole episode on that alone. But tell me, Em, do all readers of Revelation believe that it's speaking about events that are still to happen? No. For some readers, the book of Revelation is speaking about certain crises and anxieties that were happening in the author's own time. Oh. So he was warning his fellow Christians at the time that God's judgment was imminent. It was coming soon in their own lifetime. That would be terrifying to hear for the audience, right? Yeah, although I think that part of the function of the apocalypses was to reassure the audience that although they were going through some really difficult times, God was still in control and that God would soon be bringing an end to their suffering and ushering in this new age of prosperity and peace. Oh, okay, so, so books like Revelation were saying to the audience, don't worry, Things might look really scary right now and they might get even worse, but keep the faith because soon God will be bringing an end to all the evil and suffering you're going through right now. Is that right? That's exactly right, yeah. So we think that the book of Revelation was written during the late 1st or early 2nd century CE and it was addressed to Christians who were suffering under the oppressive regime of Roman imperial rule. Mm. So some biblical scholars believe that all the symbolism in Revelation is actually referring to this context. For example, the various beasts symbolize the Roman Empire or certain Roman emperors. The four horsemen of the apocalypse could represent various crises that people were living through at the time, like war or pestilence or famine. What I find really interesting is the way that Revelation depicts the violence of the final judgment the violence orchestrated by God and his heavenly army when they wage war against the forces of evil. And there's this terrifying scene in Revelation 19 that always comes to my mind when I think of the book of Revelation, where a white horse appears and it's being ridden by a mysterious unnamed man. Mm. Now, some biblical interpreters suggest this man represents Christ, but whoever he is, he's on the side of God and the angels. And the man is described as being, and I'll read from the text here, dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And then an angel appears and cries out to all the birds flying in Medea. And the angel says to them, and I'll quote from the text again, come. Gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, 
free and enslaved, great and small. Then we're told that two of God's enemies are captured, a beast and a false prophet, and they are, quote, thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Oh, that's quite deeply disturbing, hey? It is. It is. Particularly the details of the birds gorging on the flesh of God's enemies. Yeah, yeah. What we get here is a very angry and vengeful God, don't we? Yeah. And it's it's so similar to the, the angry and vengeful God we sometimes see depicted in some Hebrew Bible Old Testament texts. You know, when, when God is exacting a terrible vengeance on the sinful, the wicked, and the enemies of Israel. Yeah. But I was really struck by the imagery of the rider of the white horse treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Mm. And there's another horrific mention of a winepress in Revelation chapter 14, where a mysterious heavenly figure and an angel are both harvesting the earth with a sickle, cutting down the unrighteous. The imagery of grapes on a vine is used to represent the sinful people on earth. And we're told that and I'm quoting again here, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia, which is about 180 miles or 300 kilometers. I mean, can you just picture that in your mind? This huge wine press fueled by God's wrath that's squishing all God's enemies and flowing out of it is this vast river of blood that stretches further than the eye can see. I mean, it's such graphic and horrific imagery. It's, it's violence on an almost cosmic scale. Yeah, that's very, very grim. It's very yeah. graphic. It's very grim. But I also want to flag another couple of violent scenes mentioned in Revelation. And there's the punishment threatened against two female characters, Jezebel, the prophet who's mentioned in chapter 2, and the so-called Whore of Babylon, who we read about in chapters 17 to 19. Both of these female figures are to be subjected to forms of violence that seem particularly gendered to me. Mm, that's interesting. Gendered in what way? So the text seems to frame the punishments inflicted on these two female figures as forms of sexualized violence. Uh-huh. So first of all, the prophetess Jezebel is accused of leading believers astray. The text says that she is, and this is a quote, teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. Ooh. So it feels as though Jezebel's wrongdoings are presented in a very sexualized way here. Hmm. She's beguiling men and tempting them to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality. So in other words, she's really being cast as a, a femme fatale figure here. Yeah. I think it's really telling that her sinfulness is closely associated with her gender and her sexuality. Yeah. And that's something we've seen quite a few times throughout this podcast, 
women's deviance is so often tied to their dangerous sexuality. Yeah, that's true. Do you think that's reflected in Jezebel's punishment as well? We're told that she's going to be thrown on a bed. I mean, what do you think that means? Yeah, it's not entirely clear, but for me, it conjures up an image of rape. Mm. The act of throwing her is violent, and I think the bed carries sexual overtones. So together, they make me think of sexual assault. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And, and why do you think her children are going to be slaughtered too? I mean, what's the significance of that? Mm. I wonder if the author is setting up a virgin whore binary here to present Jezebel as the antithesis of the ideal woman. Ooh, can you say more about that? Sure. So on one hand, you have Jezebel, who's identified primarily according to her sexual sins. And on the other hand, in Revelation chapter 12, you have the idealized figure of the woman clothed with the sun. Now, this woman gives birth to a son, and both she and the child are dramatically rescued by God when she's being pursued by the forces of evil. Now, some interpreters identify this woman as the Virgin Mary, who traditionally represents the feminine ideals of chastity, purity, and and motherhood. Mm. Now, others suggest that this woman clothed in the sun is a symbol of the church, the, the bride of Christ. So again, associating her femininity with purity and holiness. So there's this real powerful dichotomy presented in Revelation between female figures who are mothers and worthy of God's protection and those who are sexually immoral and bad mothers who deserve divine punishment. Oh, that's interesting. It's as though the sexualized woman becomes a potent symbol of evil and everything that's ungodly, so her punishment is in some sense justified. Exactly. But what about the Whore of Babylon? She's become such an iconic figure in religious texts and popular culture. So Babylon is mentioned quite a few times throughout Revelation, usually personified as a woman. And most scholars agree that she's a symbol for Rome. Ah, so a really negative figure. Yeah, a really, really negative figure. And God warns that she's going to feel the, quote, fury of his wrath. Mm. In chapter 17, when we first meet her, we're told that she's, and this is again a quote, sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. She was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Okay, so just like Jezebel, there's this connection being made here between the evil that Babylon represents and her female sexuality. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Because what I can see from that quote you read, I, you know, she's depicted as a whore, an adulteress, the mother of prostitutes. Hmm. It's as though a woman's sexuality is the most heinous and sinful and dangerous thing that the author can think of to represent the greatest enemy of the Christian community, the Roman Empire. Yeah, exactly. So Babylon is held up as this terrifyingly powerful sexualized figure. And just like Jezebel, she's punished using sexual violence. Mm. In chapter 17, we read that the beast she was riding will end up hating her. And I quote from the text here, They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Ooh. Yeah. And then in chapter 19, the heavens celebrate the destruction of Babylon and God has, quote, 
condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's really grim, isn't it? Hmm. The mention of stripping her naked is very telling, though, because as we've mentioned in other episodes, stripping someone is such a powerful way to sexually shame them, to make them utterly vulnerable and humiliate them. Yeah. So if Babylon's sins are framed as sexual sins, then her punishment is also sexualized. Yeah, and we see that really clearly in Revelation chapters 18 and 19 where Babylon's imminent demise is celebrated at great length, and we're reminded time and time again that she's a whore and an adulteress. So we can never lose sight of her sexuality and the way it's being framed as the source of her wickedness. Again, it just frustrates me so much that the author of Revelation uses the symbol of a woman's sexuality to represent the worst sins and the greatest evils, as though it's the most dangerous and ungodly thing that he can imagine. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) To be honest, Em, the book of Revelation is starting to give me a bit of a migraine. (laughs) It's so frenetic and disturbing and relentlessly violent, and it's so misogynistic too. Mm. I thought you said it was meant to offer hope to a beleaguered Christian community, but I really think that it would be more likely to give them nightmares. Yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. It is pretty overwhelming, hey? Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting you mentioned that the text is intended to offer hope, because in a sense that's true. Revelation tries to capture the tyranny of life under Roman imperial domination and promises that God will deliver the Christian community from this tyranny. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've noticed is that this deliverance doesn't appear to include women's deliverance from patriarchal oppression. Mm, No. And I found this great quote from biblical scholar Tina Pippin who says, and these are her words, In the apocalypse narrative, gender oppression is left untouched by the sword of God. The tale of the apocalypse is not the tale of the liberation of female consciousness. The apocalypse is not a tale for women. Ah, that's such a great quote. And I completely agree with Tina Pippin there. Women can't be liberated through a text that uses images of sexual assault to represent divine salvation because it suggests albeit implicitly, that the violation of women's bodies is a necessary part of the salvation process and the dawning of a new age. And that's really troubling. Yeah. Let's leave Revelation behind for now and move onto another New Testament author who, I'm sorry, Kaz, might just make your migraine worse. Oh, are you talking about Paul by any chance? (laughs) I am. To be fair, it's not just Paul. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I want to take a look at some of the epistles or letters found in the New Testament. Some were likely written by Paul, some by his fellow apostle Peter, and some were attributed to Paul, but no one's entirely certain who actually wrote them. Okay. And so we're going to focus on a series of short passages from these letters that are commonly referred to as the household codes or the domestic codes. Okay, could you explain what these codes are? So the household codes are a collection of New Testament texts that consist of instructions related to Christian relationships within the household. So these are relationships primarily between the husband and wife, but they also refer to relationships between the parent and the child, the enslaved and the enslaver. I think there are a total of about seven texts identified as household codes, and we'll list these all in our show notes. 
but they include passages from the New Testament epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 1 Peter. Okay, so what exactly is the function of these codes, Sam? So New Testament scholars have different theories about that. Essentially, the codes express the expectation that Christian men should have authority and headship over their household. Aha, okay. Can you explain why we're talking about these codes in this episode about New Testament violence? I mean, do you see them as being violent texts? In a sense, yes. And I'm talking particularly about the violence that lies at the heart of any text, which seems to validate patriarchal power and privilege. Ah, okay. So when I read these household codes, I recognize the gender hierarchy they're encouraging as being the same gender hierarchy that lies at the heart of patriarchy, at the heart of misogyny and women's subordination. Now, in the household codes, this gender hierarchy is often couched in the language of Christian love, in the language of harmony and mutual respect between husband and wife. But that doesn't change their overarching endorsement of male power and control. Mm, No. So how do these household codes justify this gendered hierarchy? So I've got an example from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Do you want to have a read of that, Kaz? Sure, I can do that. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, that's clear enough, um, but I'm curious, what is the instruction given to men in this text? Well, husbands are told to love their wives just as Christ loves the church. So, to be sure, there's love involved in this relationship, but it's a hierarchical love based on a wife's submission. And isn't it so interesting that the husband is likened to Christ here? Mm. Christ is head of the church, just as a husband is head of his wife. It seems to equate men with a sense of divinity and absolute authority. Mm. I remember we also spoke about that in our episode titled See What You Made Me Do, which focused on some Old Testament texts, and we spoke about coercive control and intimate partner violence. But it's really interesting that that same theme also comes up here. Mm. And thinking about the Ephesians text, if women are equated with the church, then the idea of them having any sort of equitable relationship with their Christ-like husband or being able to question their husband or challenge him, it's completely unthinkable. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, we read something similar. The text says, and I'm quoting here, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Mm. So a wife's subordination is presented as being fitting or pleasing to God. So I'm guessing that if she refuses to recognize her husband's authority over her, she's going against God's wishes. Yeah, so a wife's subordination becomes like a divine imperative in a sense. Yeah, and that also comes out in 1 Peter chapter 3, where a wife's submission to her husband is associated with a woman's holiness. So again, husbands are reminded to treat their wives with respect and love because wives are, quote, the weaker partner. Ooh, ouch. That's a kind of backhanded compliment, isn't it? Yeah. Wives deserve your respect and love, but only because they're so weak. Mm. Do these household codes say anything else about women's role in the family and in the church? 
Yeah, they do. We'll have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, which seems to prohibit women from any form of leadership role, either in the family or in the church. Do you want to read that text for us? Yes, sure. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Mm. Mm. Is there a reason offered for why this should be? Yeah, there is. The author draws on the tradition of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 to justify themselves. And so we read, and this is a quote again, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So in other words, God created Adam first, so that makes him superior over Eve according to God's own design. And then she was the one tempted by the serpent to eat the forbidden fruit, and so is considered intellectually and morally inferior to Adam. So the writer of this New Testament letter seems to be framing Eve as every woman, doesn't he? Yeah. Eve was tempted by the snake, so it follows that every woman is equally prone to temptation and sin. All women are tarred with the same brush. Yeah, we are. But don't worry, Kaz, because just like Eve, women can redeem themselves. Oh, good. So according to this letter writer, and I'm quoting again, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. With propriety? Hmm. What, what does that mean? Well, going by this epistle and some of the other household codes, I think a woman's propriety involves being quiet being submissive, not wearing fancy clothes or jewels or having fancy hairdos. They shouldn't gossip with other women and, I'm sorry Kaz, they shouldn't drink too much wine. What? No way. That, that's the worst. I give up. I did not sign up for this. I'm sorry. It's all good. It's all good. There's nothing about drinking too much gin. Oh yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I'm saved. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the epistle to Titus chapter 2, men are instructed to, and I'm quoting here, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, it's the wine again, <sighs> but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Hmm. So in essence, the integrity of God's word is dependent on women's purity and submission to their husbands. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And similarly, in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3, Peter tells women that their beauty should be an interior beauty rather than an outward display, that they should reflect, quote, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Hmm. You know, these passages remind me so much of the way that girls and women today are trained to behave from a really early age. And not just in the Christian community, but in wider society too. We are groomed to be quiet, passive, chaste, pure, and totally subordinate to men. We can't make too much noise or draw attention to ourselves, either by the way we look or through our behaviour. What we say, what we do, what we wear, it's all policed and judged by others and we're taught to police ourselves too in order to conform to certain patriarchal expectations. Yeah, We're not allowed to take the attention or the authority away from men and we're not even allowed to say no to men even when they're hurting us or controlling us or subordinating us. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about these household codes in this episode on New Testament violence. Because... 
I mean, whatever their original purpose, they have this ongoing power to validate and to perpetuate a particularly toxic hierarchy of gender roles and relationships. They sanction men's power and control. They idealize women's subordination. And they fail to recognize that this hierarchical system is the cornerstone of so much gender-based violence. Yes. And that's something that we've kept seeing throughout this podcast series, haven't we? Mm. The, the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament texts include stories of women being abused, raped, and coercively controlled by men who feel entitled to control women's lives and women's bodies. And to be sure, these explicit forms of gendered violence aren't mentioned in the household codes, but what these codes essentially seem to be doing is laying the foundations for such violence to occur by reinforcing patriarchal ideologies. So to me, the codes are essentially setting up women to be the, air quotes, ideal victims of men's abuse and coercive control. They're painting women as weak, as inferior to men, as prone to sin and easily tempted. And they're demanding that women are quiet, subordinated, passive, uncomplaining and compliant. Mm. We've seen that before, haven't we? So often when we've talked about contemporary cases of intimate partner violence and sexual victimisation, the same dynamics are at play there too. Yeah, I agree. These texts are sending a message that male authority cannot legitimately be questioned. Mm. And particularly within the Christian community, these texts have had quite a profound effect on some women's lives because they kind of leak into Christian relationships and understandings of gender roles. Yeah. And when they're read through a particularly conservative lens, these texts have the power to sanctify men's control and subordination over their wives as something God approves of or even insists upon. Mm. And that can set up a relationship context where intimate partner violence and coercive control can flourish and can thrive. Yes, yeah, I completely agree. I see these texts as almost like a cake recipe in a strange way. Mm. And for some Christian men and women, They'll follow this recipe in the genuine hope that they'll end up with a really wonderful cake. But they don't recognise that the ingredients in this recipe aren't healthy. They consist of male power and control and male privilege, as well as female subordination. And that's not healthy, and it can never become healthy, no matter how you cook it up. And even when you add the ingredient of love that, as you said, is mentioned frequently in these texts, it's not a healthy love, is it? because it's contingent on a wife's submission and obedience. Mm. So part of a man's love for his wife seems to be rooted in his authority to control her. And yeah, that's not healthy. Yeah, I, I really love that analogy. <laughs> because when intimate partner violence is framed in the language of love, it's even harder for people to recognize it or acknowledge it, both in Christian contexts and beyond. Yeah. So as a result, a lot of times we see intimate partner violence being shrouded by silence in church communities. Nancy Nason Clark, who's a professor of sociology, refers to the silence as a holy hush. Ooh, that's such an evocative phrase. Yeah, it is. She says that, and these are her words, there is a holy hush that permeates church life when it comes to thinking about domestic violence within and beyond congregational life. Okay, so in other words, the holy hush disguises harmful and controlling behaviour as something other than the abuse it really is. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, th I think we could argue that, unfortunately, biblical texts such as these household codes can play a role in maintaining that disguise. 
Yeah, I think they can, which is why it's so important to shine a light on these biblical texts to expose their potentially harmful rhetoric. Mm, Yeah. Okay, Kaz, so I hope you've enjoyed our whistle-stop tour around violence in the New Testament. I have. (laughs) (laughs) If there's one thing you'd take away from our discussion, what would it be? Well, first and foremost, I'd say do not read the book of Revelation just before you go to sleep, as you'll probably have nightmares. (laughs) But other than that, I think what strikes me is just how important it is to recognise violence in the New Testament writings Not just the really explicit violence we see in books like Revelation, but the more hidden and implicit violence of patriarchal ideologies that are expressed in some of these household codes, because they do have an impact on people's lives today. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that any of the biblical texts in the Old Testament or New Testament created patriarchy, but I think they can play a role in reflecting it and validating it and sustaining it. And I think we need to call that out whenever we can. Mm. So what about you? What, what are you taking away from today's episode? I completely agree with everything that you just said. I think for me, our discussion today has really highlighted the potential danger of allowing our biases to take the text uncritically at face value, when clearly there are some really, really problematic texts here. So I think Christian communities in particular have a responsibility to own these passages and to be honest about them and to be challenged by the potential for harm held within them. Yeah. And being honest readers means not only being attentive to what is good and beautiful in a text, but also noticing and naming what is ugly and dangerous as well. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So shall we end this episode by telling our listeners what we've been reading or listening to this week? Yes. So I recently listened to a Wondery podcast called In God We Lust. And it's about Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife, Becky, who were this famous conservative evangelical power couple in America who kind of fell from grace because they started to have an affair with another person. Oh. Now, I won't give too much away, but I feel that lots of these toxic, hierarchical, gendered relational dynamics that we've just been talking about in the household codes are kind of bubbling away just below the surface of Jerry and Becky's relationship. Mm. And actually the hyper-conservative evangelical context of which they are a part. So it's a really fascinating um, and insightful, but also disturbing listen. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm going I'm to listen to that, definitely. Yeah, do it. Uh, what about you? Well, I've actually been watching something really distracting and cute, (laughs) just to take my mind off all these nightmarish visions in Revelation. (laughs) It's a TV crime drama called Annika. It originally aired in 2021, and it is a police procedural that's just a wee bit different. The wonderful actor, Nicola Walker, who I have a little bit of a crush on, uh, she plays the role of Detective Inspector Annika Strandhead, who is leading up the Glasgow Marine Homicide Unit. So you get a lot of lovely Scottish scenery, some lovely Scottish accents, and the character of Annika is so refreshing for a TV detective. She's she's very deep and thoughtful and quite gentle in the way she deals with people, but she's also whip smart and really, really good at her job. And I also love the fact that her character keeps breaking the fourth wall throughout each episode. She keeps turning to face the camera and speaking directly to the audience. 
and I've never seen that before in a in a crime drama. So, mm. but it's a really good way of helping you forge a strong connection with her character and kind of relate better to her. So. I would definitely recommend it. Oh, that sounds amazing. And I am actually looking for a new TV drama, so I will check that out. You should, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bloody Bible. As usual, you'll find our show notes on the website, along with the links to our social media accounts. But until next time, watch out for those many-headed monsters. And stay away from that wine press. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> we did that exactly at the same time. <laughs> Welcome to the end of the worst baking podcast in history. Apparently, it's not enough that I have apologized on behalf of all men. Now I have to apologize for patriarchal baking as well. I mean, seriously, these guys are pushing me over the edge. Do you have any idea of the hours I have put in on this podcast? Only to be greeted with nonsense like this. Wives, submit yourselves. To you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Sorry, Richard. Sorry. Right. Yeah. That's right. They should be apologising to me way more of the time. This is the end. This is it. This is it. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs>